This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Two authors indeed, and a full studio and lots to do. Fine, so let's get into it. Today's book is unlike anything else I have read. It has two main characters and a plot you could never expect where it was going, and a dead bird. The two characters are also the title of the book, Beatrix and Fred, and the author is Emily Spur. Welcome back to Published or Not, Emily. Thanks, Jan. We'd better start with Beatrix. Quote, tall, pinch-faced and hollow-eyed. Her age, her work, her home life. And uh, not too much on her problems yet. (laughs) Well, Beatrix is 46. Uh, She is a loner by choice. Um, and is slightly misanthropic. She is at a period in her life where things are not going well for her. She works in an office where she's the office manager and has a hate-hate relationship pretty much with everyone there, except for one person, Ray, who is her only friend. Her home life, well, it was when she was alcoholically drunk one night, she signed up for a mental health app. What does this non-human intelligence tell her? Ah, bot was downloaded, as you said, during a uh, drunken incident, um, to which she, of which she has no recollection the next day. So bot has to remind her that she did actually undertake <laughs> some surveys the night before, and he diagnoses her with anxiety and depression and possible paranoia, um, and sets up a program to help her get towards mental wellness. Well, of course, this bot has the most intuitive suggestions that Beatrix sometimes follows often ignores or gets really angry at. And this is also the way she's treating her workmates and even Ray. Look, there's a great deal of humour with her online texting to her mental health bot. In fact, let's hear a little bit from 52. Okay. A train hoots from the end of the street. Beatrix slides the phone closer. Can I ask you any sort of questions, bot? Of course. Will you go and find the answers? Like Siri? I am a mental health chatbot with search capabilities. I am not a general assistant. So, can you look something up for me? Consult with Google, if you like. I can. How do you know if someone is following you? I am concerned about the question, especially considering your comments regarding paranoia. Beatrix snorts and pushes the list to the middle of the table. We're both concerned about that. Can you look it up anyway? Specifically, How often can I see the same person in different places and it be a coincidence? Would you like me to consult with Google? Yes. The little pink brain spins in the middle of the screen. The top Google results suggest once, nothing to worry about. Twice, a coincidence. Three times, be concerned. (laughs) Ray at work is is concerned that... Beatrix is always checking her phone and following it with deep breathing. And he thought that she was on a dating app site. (laughs) And that was where the stalker came from. But Beatrix is paranoid that someone is following her, watching her sleep and even breaking into her house. We know this is Fred. Perhaps, Emily, you can describe Fred. 
Oh, I love Fred. Fred is a very unique character. She is at least in her 80s and she is a, a person who loves people. She loves life. She's very engaged. She's absolutely fascinated with human beings. She's also a little bit creepy and a bit of a predator. But, you know, for all of that, and even because of that, perhaps her appreciation of other people is is almost unmatched. So she's almost the opposite of Beatrix, who is, you know, as I mentioned, slightly misanthropic, whereas Fred just finds joy in everything. She sees her occasionally, glimpses her occasionally, thinks, knows she's following her, but there's a special smell associated with Fred. What is it? Peppermint. <laughs> peppermint. Oh, ladies, peppermint. I have them too. Oh, dear. I now have a tin myself. <laughs> Beatrix didn't recognise Fred from their first meeting. That was very early on. It was very early on. So Fred actually saved Beatrix, who in a moment of dark despair, I suppose, considered stepping in front of a train. And it was it was Fred's bony fingers that pulled her back. And this, of course, was the, the moment, I suppose, the sliding doors moment where, where Fred discovered Beatrix and, and a deep fascination for her. She saw something in Beatrix that no one else has and um, was quite determined that she needed to know more and she was going to keep her alive no matter what um, until she'd unravelled the mystery that was Beatrix. Fred not only follows Beatrix but also writes about the interaction they have. This part you've indented. Now what was the reason for that? Uh, um, Well that was part of the text design but um, when I was writing certainly Fred's were in a different font, a different colour, um, because they are different. And I suppose that helps me when I'm writing too because it, it's a visual cue that, that this is Fred and, and not Beatrix. But also Fred's uh, parts in the novel are very much letters, I suppose. Mm. She is actually writing to Beatrix. And through these writings, we learn that Fred is fascinated with Beatrix, having a self-destruct switch and takes her on as the last project. What does she want Beatrix to do for her finally? Can I say that? <laughs> it's a bit of a spoiler. You, no, it's <laughs> okay, not. Okay. It's right there at the beginning. Um, she, wants, she wants Beatrix to help her die, to kill her. Oh. Yeah. Well, the climax of the paranoia for uh, Beatrix being followed comes with Horatio, who she takes to work. What happens then? Oh, poor Horatio. So Horatio, I should fill you in, is a stuffed canary, dead, um, um, who is, you know, for for whatever reason, um, has become uh, a a character for Beatrix and she has a lot of deep affection for him. Um, He's the only other creature in her house other than her. Um, And poor Horatio has been uh, infected with, well, we're not sure, could be carpet beetles, perhaps dermistid. Uh, insects or, or maybe moths but poor Horatio is starting to fall apart. He's losing feathers and is being slowly eaten by parasites. So Beatrix uh, does some research on the internet um, and decides that um, she needs to uh, fix this problem so buys some borax on her way to work and proceeds to treat the bird in the office kitchen. No pets in the office. I know. But Get it out of here. No, no chemicals in the office. So on the train, she actually finally meets 
Fred, uh, Frederick or Fred. Yeah. And is Horatia? Well, well, she looks back through the train window and sees it sitting in the lap of Fred mm. um, and then assumes that the bird has been birdnapped. And then uh, a few days later discovers Horatio once again back in his place on her kitchen sink inside her house. And nicely fixed. Yes, with sewn up. <laughs> you mentioned... Well, there were live forms living in this dead carcass of Horatio and through the book we get other examples of parasites. You've done a lot of research here, Emily. I have. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a lot of deep dive into uh, different sites, uh, types of parasites, um, particularly those that infect humans and how they can also have effects on behaviour because, you know, it's no fun to have a deep dive unless you take it to the absolute ends of where it can go. Fred's comments... Parasite, you people all give it such a negative connotation. So when Beatrix gets to know Fred, she calls her her a duplicitous, manipulative parasite. Now, we're not going into the whys and wherefores, but 80-year-old Fred, Fredrika, does talk about her problematic menopause many years earlier. Very well explained. And uh, Beatrix sort of talks about my withering ovaries are making me crazy. So you did quite a bit of research too. I did. I did. Um, That was also joyously part of my own personal experience, (laughs) having gone into perimenopause very early, dealing with a lot of doctors telling me that that can't possibly be what's, what's happening without you know, looking into it. I was just summarily dismissed. So I suppose that's where that interest came from and particularly at at this time which it can happen you know from anything from late 30s onwards there is a a lot of research that I did in in terms of how it can affect behavior and people experience psychosis they experience depression there's a whole range of of symptoms um, that can occur with this because obviously hormones aren't just about reproduction they're about our brain and our brain chemistry so that was uh, a fascinating thing to do um, particularly in terms of of how it affects the character because you know when women of a certain age who are meant to be disappearing start acting mad bad or sad um, they're very much portrayed as a problem which probably sums up Beatrix quite well. Fred at the very beginning is fascinated enough with Beatrix and takes her on as one last project and that's how the book is organised. There's four parts, first contact, investigation, normalisation, comprehension and it's all about being seen for your real self. How to show what I am is a quote from the book. You know, we're going to leave with Fred's last words and these are from page five right from the beginning. This was me when I found you, Beatrix. I decided to let go of the search, to ride it out, enjoying the sunset. A contented tortoise running down the clock, a whale enjoying the ocean, moving to an end, finding a way to make it end. So the other thing, Fred sees Beatrix. She wants to keep her alive. And another quote, regret is a privilege. I really thought that was lovely. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, We did mention your previous book, A Million Things, you had a two-book contract Mm. because the theme in this book is so peculiar, so fascinating. I don't think you'd ever get a book contract (laughs) by trying to explain this, but it really was fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. (laughs) 
but weirdly, humorously different. Oh, yes, um, I, Frederick and Beatrice are going to stick with me for a long time. Oh, fabulous. Thanks so much, Jen. Emily Spur has researched brains, parasites, chatbots, psychological health and perimenopause and given us this humorous, fictional relationship in Beatrix and Fred. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks, Jen. Well, my book is well-researched and has wonderful organisation, but for a whole different reason. The mystique of the Australian digger has been contextualised in Ross McMullen's latest historical offering, Life So Full of Promise, which delves into the lives of three World War I soldiers. So, Ross, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Good morning, Dave. You've taken the lives of three young men here, Brian Pockley, Norman Calloway and Murdoch Mackay. Um, oh, there we go. We're, I'd left a microphone off. That's terrible of me. Three... Uh, young men, Brian Pockley, Norman Calloway and Murdoch Mackay, each lose their lives in this, but it's what surrounds their lives and their contrasting backgrounds that speak so eloquently here. You link each of these young men, as they were, uh, to particular chapters in Australian history with their heritage. What was the reason for doing that? You touch on some interesting times, foundation, gold rush, unionism... What was the point of contextualising it like that? Well, the, the, the model for this, uh, David, is uh, always had in my head that the characters had to display outstanding pre-war potential in something or other, doesn't matter what it is, um, and then they didn't survive the war by definition and they were so talented and special um, that they were a national-level loss. Beyond beyond the obvious impact on their families, they were a, a very national loss because they had such outstanding ta talent and potential. But they were also representative of our past as well, or Australia's past, given uh, what they were tied to. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, yes, there, indeed. there was the union movement and the pastoralist conflict yes, in, in one point. Yes. So Norman, Norman Calloway uh, grew up in Hay in the Riverina, and that was uh, very... Uh, crucial area for the 1890, notorious 1890 strikes that um, uh, came out of the uh, depression of that time and led to the formation of the Labor Party, among other things. And Brian Pockley, you've tied him back to Macquarie. Yes, his, his uh, ancestors went back to um, a chap who came out as uh, Governor Macquarie's assistant, yes. And Murdoch Mackay then with the Gold Rush era. Murdoch Mackay, um, very much in the gold rush. His grandfather um, came out, or came to Bendigo um, in the middle of the gold rush at its height in the 1850s, set up the Bendigo Advertiser, or acquired the Bendigo Advertiser, made it the um, best, really, regional paper in Victoria. Um, and his son was an outstanding editor of it. And then the grandson of that... Bendigo pioneer um, is Murdoch Mackay, who was could have been anything, yeah. but I, I well, say we can prime go, minister. We'll go into that. Yeah. Could have been prime minister. But yeah. again, it, it addresses the notion of perhaps we shouldn't see individuals in isolation, but within the context of um, their family and their upbringing and and what shaped them. Oh, certainly, I mean that's to me that's axiomatic in doing biography. 
And the lives themselves are representative also of different backgrounds and even classes. You've yes. got the establishment, rural life and the city. Yes. And one thing you've done here, Norman Calloway came to know some of Brian Pockley's friends. Mm. This had not seemed likely when Norman was young as his background and Brian's were so different. While the Pockleys were affluent, the Calloways were not. While the Pockleys were urban, the Calloways were rural. While Brian Pockley grew up in an imposing North Shore mansion, Norman Calloway lived in a basic weatherboard cottage on the edge of town. So I'm just interested in, in World War One and perhaps its contribution to a, a sense of egalitarianism in this regard. Yes, well, I, I think that that's very much the case, I think. Very much the case. I mean, the AIF was composed of all sectors of society. Um, <clears throat> I've just been aware of a book about um, the most spectacular act by Australians um, at a place called Chapilli in 1918. They were six very working class diggers who, who took on spontaneously and achieved what a British Third Corps was unable to do. At a critical stage of the war. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the working class were very, very prominent in the AIF, obviously. Yeah. But also then, you've chosen these individuals because of their contribution. Um, Brian Pockley, mm. the first uh, officer casualty of the war? I think he was... <clears throat> it's correct to say that he was the first Australian officer in an Australian unit to die in World War One. Yes. And how did he die? Well, he, he was, again, an, an outstanding background, David. He was um, spectacularly successful at school, university, both scholastically and on the sporting field. Um, he couldn't get into the war quick enough. He raced out to enlist before there was a war to be in, even, before we'd officially declared war. He, he was in the ANMEF, the first force. Everyone knows about the AIF. This is the ANMEF that was sent up at an early, very early stage of the war to deal with Ger German wireless stations that were reputedly up there, and they were there. Um, but the, the heads uh, complacently thought that a minor force was all that was necessary. They had a tougher engagement that was thought, and Brian died there. Uh, but in spectacularly noble fashion, in that he relinquished his protective um, badged armband or brassard that denoted his non-combatant medical status. He's there as a doctor, um, and he relinquished that, gave it to someone else to help them get back safely, and then toddled off a, back to the front line himself and was shot in the process without his protective brassard. And once this became known in Australia... Um, I, the reaction was such that, it, in my mind, it is absolutely correct that Brian Pockley was mourned more deeply than any other Australian of the 60,000-plus who died in World War I. But there's an interesting contrast here with his brother who dies later in the war, Jack. He had a brother, Jack, who was an admired officer in the 33rd Battalion, um, and this is the crisis of the war for the British when they were driven well back. People were concerned the war after all these horrific sacrifices, casualties, hardships, deaths um, was going to be lost because the Germans were pushing them well back. Australian forces rushed to the rescue, um, were critical at this time. I, I, in my view, 
Australians in 1918 were influencing the destiny of the world more than Australians ever had have had at any other time. Um, and Jack Pockley's in the centre of this. Um, and with British forces driven back, the, the chief, the British general on the spot, decides that the Australians should counter-attack to try and retrieve the situation. Uh, Jack Pockley's involved in that. He's uh, shot in the process. He's lying there wounded. Stretcher bearers come to him. He says, no, go and get that bloke first, that sergeant. And they went and got the sergeant, retrieved him, came back to Jack, found him dead. So this, this was widely seen as similar to his brother. Three and a half years apart, noble death, uh, deferring to others. Um, you know, Bright had relinquished his, his protective brassard. So there, there were sort of parallels. Anyway, whether I think there were parallels, it was widely seen that there were parallels because they'd, they'd been so noble in, in the manner But people had become less, um, or how would you put it, um, more used to uh, death, and so it wasn't as well recognised, perhaps? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Absolutely correct. I mean, the, the perceptions of of the fatalities arising from a global, uh, from a world war mm. were um, much less understood when Brian died in, in, in September 1914 than they became later. You have Norman Calloway, a more manly, upright lad, never buckled on a pad. Uh, <laughs> he's got a, a sporting yeah. background, country background. Grew up in the Riverina at Hay, uh, displayed outstanding uh, potential from an early age at, uh, as a cricketer. The family moved to Sydney to see how far his talent could take him in the game. Uh, he had spectacular success very quickly. Um, he uh, played first grade and made 100 very early on at 17. Um, he was chosen to play for New South Wales, still only 18, against Queensland, first class taboo, comes in, New South Wales in trouble, three for 17. And um, he proceeds to make 207 in absolutely astonishingly classy fashion. Uh, this is not, this is not uh, um, um, brazen, uh, lucky, wacky T20-style shots, but classic cricket shots of the highest quality. But what is the role of a, a sport in Australian life and how was it taken back then? How was it oh, sport has, 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 for much of Australian life, been, been fundamentally critical, yeah. So, uh, but he, the problem for Norm was things, things were panning out for his family and Norm in particular better than they could have even hoped for. And, but the New South Wales Cricket Authorities decided to cancel first-class cricket. So his pathway to what he wanted to do... Uh, was blocked and so and there was a lot of pressure put on um, the sportsmen in particular, cricketers to enlist. Norm in the end did and he died at the Western Front, the Battle of Bully Corps in May 1917. And really sport and heroism sort of went hand in hand, still nobly as yes. the men generally are playing their parts. There are perhaps some who ought to feel it a little more and give that response which every sportsman who has youth and strength and no family responsibilities should give at this hour in the Empire's fight. So these appeals and sportsmanship, therefore you are prime candidate for Im war. Immense pressure. Uh, <clears throat> implicit and as you've just provided explicit uh, that was in a newspaper uh, which you read out David um, to enlist and Norm in the end did yeah 
Murdoch Mackay, a lawyer of great potential. Now, I'm also holding up to the microphone a picture of his uh, wife, Margot. I've fallen in love with this picture, in fact. Uh, and he was infatuated with her and had great potential. Um, so Murdoch, widely known as Doc, um, uh, he, he did an astonishingly successful degree at Melbourne Uni. Um, extraordinary honours and, and uh, scholarships, etc. The Melbourne Uni law professor said in his almost two decades at uni, uh, he'd, he'd known no more talented student than Doc Mackay. In final year law, he met Margot, uh, instantly smitten. Um, she's only 18. Um, he's open, he's emotionally open, unusually, I think, for that time, emotionally open, has no qualms about writing letters saying, I've fallen in love with you, you must, you must realise this. Um, she says, well, OK, uh, I'm, I'm pleased about that, sort of, but I'm only 18 and it's a bit early for me to commit. Um, so Murdoch had, while he's pursuing this illustrious career in the law um, as a barrister, um, has to deal as best he can with uh, Margot's unwillingness to commit. And four years on, he's still waiting. But also then, a lot of his life is covered in the letters. Mm. Uh, the letters he's mm. sent to Margot, the letters that Margot receives about his uh, actions in the war, uh, because he virtually saved the brigade. Um, what I want to tell you is that our Mac is the hero of the brigade, and if he does not get a decoration as a reward for a brave officer and soldier, I will be much surprised. Mac absolutely saved the company under heavy shellfire. This is at Posse Air, yeah. um, the 22nd Battalion that uh, Murdoch Mackay was, was a senior officer in, um, was involved in two battles at Posse Air. Uh, what you've described is, is, is what happened in the first one. Um, that failed overall, although successful on the side where Murdoch was. Um, <clears throat> when they had a second go, no less an authority than Charles Bean, the official Australian historian, wrote at the time and repeated in the official history long afterwards that Australia's greatest victory in the entire Somme campaign was due to the actions of one man, and this is Doc Mackay, and his, his outstanding leadership at a, tri at a tricky moment, uh, but he died in the process. But also now we get the aftermath. Mm. Talking about letters... As, as in all three stories. In all three stories, mm. because Margot even though she knows of her husband's death, still gets letters from him. Yes, yes, the letters, there's this six-week delay, and so the letters keep coming, um, and including one that he arranged to be sent... Um, On the event of his death. In the event of his death yeah, yeah. By, by a friend of his. Yeah. But also, then, we see the aftermath of the other characters as well. I mean, as you said previously, Murdoch could have been a potential Prime Minister, Norman could have played for Australia mm. and Brian's death in many ways elevated and commemorated and remembered well after, a century after mm. his death. There are um, scholarships and honours in his name at certain schools and such mm. like. So mm. you, that you've put it, their lives in a broader perspective in that regard, which is the fascinating thing about mm. this yes. book. 
Unfortunately, we're going to Thanks, have to David. end there. We've yeah, run yeah, out of time. No, life and times, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. I was talking to Ross McMullen, Life So Full of Promise, and it's a scribe release. Jan? Well, Ross's book might have been full of life and death. Ours is questionable on that. <laughs> and I was speaking with Emily Spur about her book, Beatrix and Fred by Text. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, authors. Thank and you, David. now it's time for City Limits, so here we go. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.